This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. My guest today is Mark Richardson. Mark, from the years 2011 until 2018, was the executive editor and editor-in-chief of Pitchfork. Before that, he was a longtime writer for the site. He basically started writing for the site in the late 90s, right around the time that it started. Um, Mark is one of those people that if you read about music... Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've read something that he has written. Uh, if you work as a music writer, your path has probably intersected with Mark at some point. He is a very well-known person in the modern landscape of music criticism. And as a guy who was a part of Pitchfork for a very long time, um, I wanted to talk to him. You know, because he recently left the site. He's going to do something else with his life now. And he has a very interesting perspective on how Pitchfork, which is the defining, certainly indie music site of the last twenty years. Uh, I think really, you know, we talk about this in the in the in the conversation. I, you know, Pitchfork clearly, I think, is the equivalent to what Rolling Stone was in the sixties and seventies, and maybe what Spin Magazine was in the eighties and nineties. Uh, the, the sort of central hub of at least indie music culture, the the place that you would go to kind of get the pulse you know, of what is going on in music at the moment. And uh, in a way, you could almost say that Pitchfork is almost like a last link in the chain because I wonder if we are at a point now where social media has supplanted any single music website. Uh, because you know there really was a time, I think in the mid-2000s or so, when... If you were an indie music fan, you went to Pitchfork every single day. And there was a very good possibility that you were going to read about a record that you had not heard about anywhere else. And if not for Pitchfork, there are so many different artists that would not have the audience that they have today. (laughs) It's because Pitchfork wrote about them at a particular moment in time when they had a place in the media sphere that the, that they could reach an audience that would you know sort of understand what they were talking about you know because of pitchfork support they were able to to build a pretty big music community for a while and you know, the thing about pitchfork now is that it's still a really great site i think you could argue that it's probably better written now than it ever has been in its history and yet uh things have changed you know the the world has changed the media has changed the idea that you're going to go to any one site and read about an artist that you haven't heard about anywhere else, it just seems sort of inconceivable now. I feel like we hear about everything at the same time through various different avenues. There's no single avenue uh, that is sort of the go-to, at least when it comes to music news. So I, I want to talk about that with Mark. <laughs> you know, what has it been like to to witness that evolution? And uh, we had a really great conversation. It was very interesting. You know, when I started this podcast, an idea that I had was that Maybe this would be like a Mark Marin type thing with music critics, like I, because I, I'm interested in the history of music writing, <laughs> kind of like how Mark Marin talks to comedians. I thought, well, maybe I'll do that with music writers, and I abandoned that idea pretty quickly because uh, not many people care about the history of music writing. You know, you can't really have a podcast just doing that. However, talking to Mark for this episode, it sort of revived that interest for me. You know, and it was very fun talking to him about this stuff. So I'm anxious to get to that conversation. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week, and it is our friends at Indeed.com. When you're hiring, you don't want to waste time sorting through dozens of irrelevant resumes. You want an efficient way to get to a short list of qualified candidates. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes. Set up screener questions based on your job requirements. Then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. Discover why 3 million businesses are using Indeed for hiring. Post a job today at Indeed.com slash hire. Search for greatness, search Indeed. Yes, so maybe you are 
you know, a very well-respected music editor and you're looking for a new job because you've just left your longtime place of employment. You know, or maybe you're looking for an editor of some sort. We're hiring a DJ here at the radio station. We're looking, going to yeah. use Indeed. Maybe, uh, maybe you want a new uh, podcast host for your favorite or music producer. Pod- yeah. Or producer, because you're sick of the person you have. You want to hire somebody else. This is the place you want to go. So again, when it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You don't need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed, post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, and zero in on the qualified candidates. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free when you sign up at Indeed.com. In terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. So again, it was me and Mark Richardson, formerly of Pitchfork, a longtime fixture of Pitchfork, an important part of the fabric of that place. Uh, we talked about the site. We talked about you know, his career and, and just what is the state of music writing right now? Like, Where are we going? What is the future? So yeah, let's get down to it. This is me and Mark Richardson on the Celebration Rock Podcast. So, Mark, it's fun to talk to you. We've never actually spoken before. And I feel like I say this before every podcast with a music critic, but I think that's why I started a podcast was so I had an excuse to phone music critics that I like. So it's nice to chat with you. And I'm wondering, you know, because you you obviously recently left Pitchfork. So, like, are you on, like, a desert island with other like music critics who have like recently left jobs, like you know, like 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 bank robbers after a big score, like just living on the riches from music criticism right now. I I really wish I was. You know, I always picture uh, I always picture the music writers' old folks' homes that we'll all be in someday, <laughs> where um, we can sit around and talk about music and editing and writing and deadlines. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, for now I'm. You know, um, it's very strange for me. I was full-time at Pitchfork for 11 years. Yeah. And this is my fourth day of not working. Fourth work day of not working at. And, you know, and I think it's strange for a lot of people, you not being at Pitchfork. I feel like you have been synonymous with that place for a really long time. And there were a lot of nice tributes given to you, like, after, like, when you said that you were leaving. I think that was, like, in... May or something? Was it like April or May? It was late April. Late April. And I don't want to pry or anything because these things aren't any of my business, but I mean, could you talk a little bit about like what prompted your decision to leave? Yeah. So, so basically, um, it's funny this year in February this year, um, I hit, it, it had been 20 years since I had my first piece on pitchfork. It was February of 1998. And um, I kind of had in the back of my mind for a little while that um, maybe I would try something else at some point. Um, you know, running Pitchfork has been completely amazing. I mean, it's, you know, a dream job. I was editing music magazines. There aren't, there aren't even that many of those jobs in the world. Yeah. And um, But somehow, like, early this year, you know, I, I noticed that deadline where I've been there writing for the site for 20 years. and I've been a full, full-time employee for 11 years. And um, I don't know, it, it just kind of occurred to me that, I, that one of two things could happen. One, I could stay here as long as they'll have me. And, you know, maybe um, maybe I'll be editing Pitchfork when I'm 60 years old. Um, that seemed unlikely, but I, I thought I could try to hold on to this job as, as long as I can. Um, or the other thing was, okay, let's say I'm not going to do it for the rest of my life. Well, then if I'm ever going to try to do something else, maybe it's better to do it sooner rather than later. Um, partly just because it was, I felt like I had an opportunity to leave on my own terms, uh, my own timeline, do it kind of the way that I wanted to. And, um, I don't know. It just felt like it was the right time to do that. Um, you know, like editing, uh, like running Pitchfork, there's a chunk of it that's, you know, I'm overseeing editors and, you know, helping with content, what's on site. I was also writing for the site. And then there's also an element to it, which is, um, like the executive stuff and, you know, um, dealing with people at Conning Ass, trying to figure out how Pitchfork, you know, how to make money. 
uh, trying to figure out what the future of publishing looks like, you know, trying to figure out how we fit in the Conde Nast and talking to people about new ideas for different projects or different products or, or whatever. Um, and that part of it was good, but something that I was like, I wouldn't mind maybe not doing this and thinking a little bit more about writing, yeah. um, which I haven't been able to do for a little while. So, yeah. um, so I kind of added all that up and it just kind of made sense. Uh, it also, as I probably, I think I said somewhere online, it was like a really nice opportunity to go out when things are really good at Pitchfork. Yeah. Um, the site traffic this year has been record setting. A lot of people are reading it. Connie Nast is really still very happy, you know, with, with where Pitchfork is there. Um, and, you know, like publishing world is crazy, always changing. You know, it's like actually the day after I, um, the day after my last day, August 1st, there was a thing in the New York Times where Connie Nast is trying to sell three of their publications. Um, and, you know, Pitchfork's very secure there, but it's just like, just added it all up, and I was like, "This, this feels like the right time for me." I mean, I'm, I'm thinking. I, I don't. I think you're a little bit older than me. Like, are you in your late 40s or so? Yes, I'm 48. You're 48, so I'm 40. I'm gonna be 41. So we, we're both, you know, gray old men of online yes. publishing at this point. And I remember ancient, ancient men. Put, we're about to get on the iceberg, I think, and be sent out to sea. Um, but. I remember getting started, because um, I started out in daily newspapers, and then I started working at the AV Club in 2006, which isn't that long ago. You know, it's only like 12 years ago, but I, it seems like decades ago in terms of how websites were run. I remember posting everything on the site at midnight, and that's all that would be on the site all day long. Like, yep. And <laughs> there was just this idea like, okay, people are just going to come, and they're going to look at it. And uh, that's fine. And I, I had no idea what the traffic was on the site. I'm sure someone did, but like I, no one ever told me about it. It wasn't even something that we really thought about. It was like if a story gets a lot of comments, people are reading it, I guess. Um, and certainly Pitchfork has changed a lot over that same period of time. Um, I mean, you, you were kind of alluding to this earlier. I mean... Are you someone that do you do you sort of look back on that wistfully now? Do you sort of wish that it was more like that now, or do you sort of just accept that this is the way the world is and it, it had to change? Right. Well, one thing I one thing I remember about that time um, that I do miss, I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who when I think about um, you know technology and how the how the world's changing, I always feel like the good and the bad tend to cancel each other out. Um, So there's always some things that are better and some things that maybe were better then. Um, And I'm not really somebody... So I I kind of avoid the extremes there, and I feel like there's always a mix of it. When I look back at that period, um, which you... Really, the the time that you're talking about, the the best way to define it is pre-social media. Right. I feel like like social media changed everything for, for people writing culture space. Right. Um, there's just, there's, if, if somebody who's coming up and they're just starting to write about music or other culture in 2018, it's impossible for them to even wrap their head around what it was like in 2006, 7, 8, even, um, when there was no social media and your, your opportunity for feedback and what you're doing was very limited. Um, and there's kind of two sides to that. One, you put a lot of pieces out into the world and, you know, you wrote, you were doing stuff for AV Club, which always had a very robust and healthy comment section. So you always got to see what, what people thought when stuff went up. For better or worse. um, (laughs) I said for better or worse, not necessarily for better, but yeah, yeah, there definitely was feedback. But man, of all the comments sections on, in the world, uh, you know, AV Club was always pretty good. You know, it's like, uh, at least, at least that was my, uh, my perception of it is that it was like, well, these are people that care, right. you know, um, for the most part. It, it just seemed like the tr- the uh, people that care to troll ratio is pretty good. 
Yeah, I mean, it, but, it would. It, I feel like that got worse as things went on, and then the, mm-hmm. those people all migrated to social media at some point, right? You know, but at any rate, totally. But you know, one thing that was so interesting about that is one, you didn't really have um, the, the feedback, the instant feedback, where people are like, "Oh, great piece, loved it," or "Here's what you got wrong," or whatever. But um, my my memory of it, and this this is both a good and bad part of it, is that it was a little bit easier to put things out there without a lot of fear. Right. Um, and I, you know, sometimes it would be like, mm, I don't know about this. I'm trying something different and you put it out there. And, um, I don't know. You didn't have, it was, it was easier to do that for me at least. Um, I guess I'm thinking specifically of in the pitchfork realm, um, the column that I, that I wrote for a long time called resident frequency. Um, I, I wrote about 90 of those and um, some of them are pretty personal to almost an embarrassing degree now. But um, when I would put them out in the world in 2006 or seven, it, it, it felt almost like a blog or something where it was like, well, a few people are going to read this, but either people care or they're just going to skip it. You know, I'm not, I'm not really going to hear from anybody um, otherwise. And that, that really changed the social media era because you're, you're immediately aware that if you embarrassed yourself, there were going to be people online telling you how much you embarrassed yourself. Right. And so I think, I think for me, it in some ways led to writing a little bit safer, but also probably the flip side of that is your writing becomes a little bit more rigorous because you know you're going to, um, you know you're going to be, it's going to be scrutinized and you're going to be hearing about it. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, a little fear is good. Probably. And yeah, you because know, yep. I, I read some of my stuff from that time and I'm like, I should have been a little bit more scared because yeah. there's some things I wrote that it's like, nah, this is, ooh, I don't know about yeah. this. It's a little too, a little too hot, you know? And, um, but I do think, you know, and again, I think uh, I agree with you. There's, there's usually, you, you know, as things advance, you gain things and you give things up. And I think the advantage that we have now is that the number of people who are writing and sort of the diversity of people that are writing is way greater than it ever has been. And I would say on balance, there's more good writing now than yep. there ever has been. There's also more bad writing because just because there's more writing period. Um, but one thing I do miss is that you, know, you mentioned social media. I think one thing that social media did was that it eliminated audiences and it made everyone one big audience. So the right. idea that you could write a piece with a certain kind of person in mind and say, well, okay, I'm writing, like I'm writing to their expert level. I'm writing to their experience. I'm writing because I think that this will connect with them. You don't really get that anymore. So right. if you try to do that, it can be taken by someone who maybe isn't in that audience and put on, you know, and taken out of context. And then it sort of mushrooms from there into, you know, it, it can, it can turn ugly, uh, pretty quickly if, if you end up in, in the barrel like that. So that's one thing that I miss having an audience that you knew was for you. And I think yep. Pitchfork definitely had that, uh, for, for like maybe the first decade or so, like the pre-social media era, there was like a Pitchfork audience. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, Let's go back to, for you. When did you first get involved with Pitchfork? First of all, with Pitchfork? Yeah. So, um, let's see. It was, it was, I applied to write for Pitchfork in um, the end of 1997. And my first piece ran in 1998, early. So, um, so at that point, you know, I, I can kind of extrapolate back I can I can remember traffic figures from, you know, getting the email from Ryan Schreiber, the owner and founder of Pitchfork, then, um, saying what the traffic was in like 1999. So if I go back another year, you know, there might have been a thousand people a day reading it, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I'm sure just the way of measuring traffic was very crude. Maybe 800 people a day, who knows? But yeah. um, somehow I stumbled upon the site. In late 1997, I had an office job, and I wanted—I was killing time, and you know, in my cube, and wanted to read about music. And somehow, I wound up on Pitchfork, 
And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. Another thing that people have a hard time wrapping their head around is like, this was before Google. So, um, just, just finding something to read online was actually quite challenging because <laughs> right. there were a couple of really, really bad search engines, uh, and they, they didn't index things well. And, um, it was, you know, I, I don't know how I wound up there, but it was just the idea of finding a website was quite tricky, actually. Um, so, yeah, I had been writing about music a little bit at that point, kind of on, on my own. But um, Pitchfork was actually the first um, the first place I published music writing other than on my own. I published a couple of other pieces, but and, that was kind of the beginning of my music. And you said that you were like working in a like an office job at the time. I mean, did had you ever wanted to be a music critic, or was just like just a hobby for you, basically? It was absolutely just a hobby. Um, funny thing, like uh, I was, you know, a huge, huge music fan, going back to, you know, when I was fourteen or fifteen. But um, and I really wanted to be a writer. Um, but somehow I didn't really think about putting the two of them together. Um, I, I, I'm not even sure why, honestly. I, mean, I, I read plenty of books about music, but I, though I wanted to be a writer, I thought of myself then as I, I thought I would write fiction. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't say, like, I want to be a music critic, but I was a, I was a writer who loved music. And somehow I didn't, I didn't think to put those things together until I was person who starts doing it. I think I was 27. And like, uh, and like yeah. was this a matter of like, oh, I read Spin or I read Rolling Stone and I didn't like what they wrote, so then I'm inspired to write. I mean, like, was that the <laughs> impetus that, essentially or like what, what kind of made you reach out to Pitchfork and want to you know, be published? Sure. Well, I, I definitely read a lot of Spin and a lot of Rolling Stone um, through the 80s and 90s. Um, actually, I feel like I have an older brother and I'm fairly certain he bought the first issue of Spin. Um, so I, I feel like I started reading that right, right from the beginning. But um, kind of interestingly, I, so here's how I started writing about music. I was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, it was 1996 or 1997. And San Francisco at that time um, was kind of the epicenter for um, the scratch DJ world. So uh, in addition to like, Somehow I just like I just drifted toward this music, which was kind of happening in San Francisco. Uh, the, the like, you know, broader, bigger side of it was like DJ Shadow and producing came out in 1996. Um, I heard that that year he was he was Bay Area, and there was this kind of whole world around what he was doing that included people like the Invisible Scratch Pickles, who were the DJ crew. Um, a track was actually. He was 16 years old. He was kind of part of that whole crew. Uh, and uh, I, I, was, I went to some shows where, where people were doing the Scratch DJ stuff. And I was, I was completely obsessed with it, as we as that sounds. But I just thought it was amazing. And I loved watching it live. And to me, it seemed like this. It, to me, it seemed like this, you know, earth-shattering thing. The, the thing that these, like, three or four guys with turntables were doing. And... Um, my best friend at the time, a guy named Josh Loman, he was a designer. And um, we had actually done, we started a web design company together um, a year earlier, and we were trying to say, like, we're going to design websites for money, and that's going to be our career. Uh, that didn't really go anywhere, but he was a very good designer, and we were going to see all these DJ events in San Francisco, and we're like, man, we should do a site about this. We should we should document this because this is really important and it's happening right now and it would be fun. So we started a website. Um, I, I wrote for it and he did the design and it was basically documenting the DJ scene in San Francisco in 1996 and 1997. And right away I was like, boy, I really enjoy this. I'm really enjoying writing about this and I'm finding this music really interesting. So that was my first stab at really writing about music. And um, it's funny now because there were people like that I would read in like Herb and Accelerator, a couple print magazines that I was reading at the time, 
like Oliver Wang, you know, he's still around now. I'm friends with him on Facebook, and I've, I've met him briefly. But he was like one of the big writers in the area, and Jeff Chang was also covering his stuff. Right. Um, so it was like it really felt like this epicenter of something interesting, and so um, I want—I was just compelled to dive in and write about it. And then from there, it was like when I saw this in the pitchfork, I was like, oh, well, you know, give that a try. And my the piece that I submitted to Ryan to write the pitchfork was a review of a show, a scratch DJ show in San Francisco, which never ran or supported. But um, but he was like, you know, he, he liked it. And he's like, well, maybe pitch some records to write about. And one of them that I chose was a band that I'd just gotten into, and it was Mom's Mouse. It was their album on Socratic West, which came out, I think, in November 1997. Funny thing about that is I pitched that to Ryan to write about, and he said, okay. The review didn't end up running until February 1998. <laughs> but at that point on Pitchfork, it was like, yeah, it was only three months ago, so, you know, it's still, still plenty new enough to run. Yeah. So my first, my first Pitchfork review was Bonnet's uh, Mouse Love Socratic West. Well, and like you were saying before, that, I mean maybe Spin reviewed that record. I doubt Rolling Stone did. I mean, there probably weren't, like, a ton of, like, easily accessible reviews to that record. I mean, you know, outside of zines and stuff. Right. So, yep. it wasn't that competitive. It'd be like, well, yeah, there's probably a lot of people that hadn't heard about it, so why yep, not review exactly. it three months later? Um, and did you start writing pretty regularly after that? Mm-hmm. Yep, I did. So, after that, I think Ryan had sort of an informal deal with his main writers that you review two, two albums a week. And you know, that's a pretty heavy clip now. Yeah. But at the time, I was like, great. Um, and I know that for the first, at least the first year, maybe the first two years, there was no money. Um, partly, it's, it's, this is a weird thing that people have a hard time understanding, but like, there really weren't ads on websites in 1997. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> The idea of like, yeah, we're going to put what you know, advertising websites. It was like brand new. So um, that you know, they came pretty quickly within a year or two. But yeah, there was no money at first. Uh, but I was writing. I was reading two records a week, and um, I really had to. I, I was just. I just kind of threw myself into it. You know, I'd never reviewed a record before, but I was like, man, I'm now I'm cranking through this and. Um, Funny thing was then too, like Ryan would send, I'd get a package in the mail with 20 CDs and it's like, well, I got to review all these, you know? So it's like in the next 10 weeks, I'm doing two of these a week. Right. And um, sometimes there were one sheets in there, press materials, often there were not. And at that <laughs> time, like small labels, they didn't have a website, you know? So it's like, I, I would just have a CD I've never heard of this artist. There's no press information. I can't find anything online. It doesn't exist. I'm just going to go off the top of my head. <laughs> that was kind of like how it was for a little while there. You know. And, um, but yeah, it was like I I immediately enjoyed it. You know, I mean, I was I was I was pretty excited to be doing it. And actually, the other part of it was, um, man, cut in any time. I feel like I'm giving you the really long version. Of no, no, keep going. You're good. Hopefully someone will edit it. But, um, well, the other part of this was, and partly why it was so exciting for me, is that um, I was in San Francisco at the time. I had moved there from Seattle. But for the previous three or four years, um, I'd been pretty rootless and wandering around a lot. Um, I, I travel a lot. Um, I, people always found this interesting and mentioned it, but I, I worked for six months on a fishing boat in Alaska. And, oh, you did um, that. You did that. You did like the Hemingway stuff. Yeah, this I is totally like Hemingway did. type stuff. This is awesome. Yeah, so I, I I did work on a fishing boat in Alaska, and so I, I I wandered around a lot, and I didn't have very much money. So for the previous three or four years, I bought very little music, and um, that was very much in contrast to the ten years before that. So when I first started writing Pitchfork again, I was like, man, I haven't really followed music since 1994. And I'm so excited to be doing this and loving what's out there. And it was like, uh, it was just this bounty of like, I can't believe how much great music there is right now. Yeah. And, um, so it was just hugely exciting to me. And 
I always bring this up as an example. Like, I pretty much was completely tuned out during Britpop, and I don't know any of that stuff. You know, we, we did that Britpop list last year, yeah, and it was like, I mean, I, I know singles from a chunk of those bands, but it was like the entire part of Britpop, I didn't have a CD player. You know, I was like, I was, all my CDs were in storage. I was wandering around doing other stuff. You were gutting fish then, like when Oasis yeah. was making... Exactly. What's the story right. of Morning Glory? You can't be listening to that. No, I totally missed it. So, <laughs> partly why it was so exciting when I was doing Pitchfork. I want, so I want to go back. all my catching up. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go back to something you were saying earlier about how you'd get records in the mail and there might be a one sheet or there might not be. And if there wasn't a one sheet, you had really no biographical information at all about a record. Right. And it made me think about this thing that I think it was Simon Reynolds wrote this thing once where he was talking about music writing in the seventies. And like, when you read it sometimes, like how the writing is, is unpolished, but the ideas are really interesting. And he, he made this point that seems so obvious, but I think is totally brilliant. And talking about how the advent of word processing made writing easier and better. Like it made it easier to be a good writer once you didn't have to work on a typewriter anymore, once you could just right. like go back and delete things and edit your own work very easily. And there's something similar with the internet uh, because, right. you know, like a lot of times people look at Pitchfork from the late nineties and they're sort of like, Oh, this is like so crazy. Like the writing back then is like so unconventional that, and that was part of what was exciting about it. And, and to a degree, I feel like that was probably deliberate, not wanting to sort of emulate the professionalism of, conventional music magazines, you know, kind of going against yeah, that. But there was also that thing you were talking about, how maybe you need to make up a fictional short story in your music review because you don't have any information about the record. So it's yep. like you can't fall back on all the things that you can fall back now as a music critic when you can Google every story that's ever been written about a particular band and stitch together your own take if that's what you want to do. I mean, that, that's something that's very easy to do that now. Whereas then, yeah, it, you had to kind of invent it out of whole cloth sometimes. Yep, absolutely true. And, you know, especially then, too, I was, I would be sent things to review that were well outside my area of expertise right. often. Um, I'm not sure I had an area of expertise yet, even. But, uh, and, and yeah, I would, my reference points were few, and um, there may not be any information about it. You know, like, I, I remember getting sent something on, like, Fat Red Chords, and I'm like, I don't know anything about punk rock. You know, I know the Ramones. Like, I, I had no idea what's going on in punk in 1998. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes you had to wing it. And sometimes, and at that point, you're like, well, let me see if I can make this entertaining, at least, um, if, since it's not going to have a lot of interesting insight into music. So we tried to do that, and at least my part often failed at that as well <laughs> that was part of learning but I mean because I mean when I look back and I don't know how you feel about this I mean you were on the inside so maybe it's it's different for you but as far as like my generation of music writers goes I mean Pitchfork is the equivalent of like Rolling Stone in the 60s and 70s yeah like they like you know Pitchfork was the center of music discourse and it still is to a degree Although it's a little bit different now just because the media is different now. I mean, mm -hmm. it's hard for any one website to be the center the way that, say, Pitchfork was in the 2000s. Right. You know, before, again, before social media, where you would literally, if you were a music fan, if you were into indie music, you would check Pitchfork every single day because that's where you might hear about the next big band. You know, you, right. and, you, and you may literally read about them the, for the first time on this site. Yep, um, what are your feelings about that? I mean, that might be awkward for you to talk about having worked there, but where, where do you see Pitchfork's place, I guess, in music yeah. discourse in that time? Well, I think that, um, I mean, I, I, I think, I remember once Pitchfork was really rolling um, by, I kind of think of the start of the modern era of Pitchfork, and I dated the 2004 which is when, um, although it was pretty big by 2002 and three too, but I mean, you know, big for the, for the time. But 2004 is when Ryan hired uh, his two first-time employees. One of them is 
Chris Caskey, who was the first, who was hired as a salesperson, he eventually became president. The other person was um, Scott Flagenhoff, who was like the first editor. And at that point, Pitchfork, that, that was like the start of Pitchfork becoming a professional thing. Um, but by that point, it was, it was before it became a professional thing, it was already an influential thing, especially in the indie music era. But I can remember when Pitchfork's profile was rising in 2002, 3, 4, thinking that, um, that it, it, in my mind, it, it very much is, is like Rolling Stones in Pitchfork. You know, especially if you're talking about um, if, if you're talking about music that kind of centers on the rock world, right. um, all you know, all those, all three of those publications covered plenty outside of the rock world. But you could say that they took, you know, the center, uh, the center of them all was, was rock, indie rock in Pitchfork's case, alternative rock in Smith's case, and rock rock in Rolling Stone's case. Um, that to me, that that is the lineage in like North American, you know, music right. Um, obviously, like uh, there was a lot of other great writing happening, a lot of other places, but none of them really had the kind of center of gravity that, that Pitchfork did. Just as an example, like obviously the number of amazing writers that came out of Phyllis Voice in the seventies, eighties, nineties completely dwarfs what Pitchfork was doing in 2003, to put it mildly. But it never really had the same kind of uh, national uh, taste-making profile. You know, it was like, it was a little bit more of a, you know, uh, well, it was obviously much more of a New York thing. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't reading it once when I was a kid. I'd, well, and, and you, you can't make jokes about the Village Voice. Like, the pitch, yeah. like, like Pitchfork could be caricatured, which, is, which yeah. speaks to their personality. It's like you could, yeah. you, you, could you, you know, if you said, oh, that's like a Pitchfork band, or like this, is like a, this reads like a Pitchfork review, even when people are sort of putting down the site, that's a compliment to the site because it says, hey, yep. we, have a, we have a personality, we have a trademark that people recognize. And yep. there's no other music website that comes close to Pitchfork in that regard as far as I'm concerned. Yep, that's exactly it. It, it always had a, and it, it, it always had a case profile. You know, it's like that's partly why people loved it. That's partly why some people hated it. Um, <laughs> right, right. Because it was, it, it it was never just a collection of reviews. You know, I I always think of um, that website Stylus. Do you remember that one? Oh yeah. Well, you know, 2006. They I think Stylus shut down in 2007, but 2006. I read Stylus a lot. It was clearly modeled on Pitchfork. Um, there were probably 10 writers that were writing for it in 2006 who later went out to write for Pitchfork. But um, one thing it never, and it was, there was a lot of great writing there, but one thing it never had was, never, it never had a particular point of view. You know, it was just a collection of reviews. And so right. if the person assigned the new Radiohead was like, yeah, this this band sucks, I'm giving it a D, it'd be like, okay, we'll just make an initial piece of writing, you know what I mean? But, like, that's not how it worked in Pitchfork. It was always like, okay, in the opinion of the site, Radiohead's a very important band, so we need to sign this to a writer who takes them very seriously. And, um, you know, it's like that kind of perpetuates itself over time. So getting back to that caricature of, of Pitchfork, and again, it's a caricature, it's a reduction, so it's, it's not entirely fair, but it's also not entirely unfounded either. Like in the 2000s, you know, when people would say Pitchfork Review, often they would sort of characterize that as being very irreverent, sometimes dismissive or, 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 or cutting even. Some might even say insulting. <laughs> to, certainly if it was right. like Jet, you know, if you're, if you're in Jet, you probably found Pitchfork insulting. Um, but when I think about your style, your style of writing, you seem like the antithesis of that in a lot of ways. You don't seem like a necessarily very irreverent guy. You've always seemed to be a very sort of guy who takes things very seriously, very kind of a, a very thoughtful type of writer. Um, and I was wondering if that was ever like weird for you or if you ever like winced at any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, I think there, there was, there was some tension, uh, between those two things, uh, in some ways. Um, I feel like, I feel like that's something that evolved over time with Pitchfork. And I think it's something that people miss about the old site to some degree, um, which was like the, 
hilarious slam or something <laughs> that deserved it. Right. Um, and I myself enjoy reading that kind of review, um, especially when it comes from somebody who's knowledgeable. Um, I guess I guess I would say in my heart of hearts, um, mean-spiritedness is not that appealing to me no matter what, but I think you can actually write a really entertaining pan right. that also is um, generous. You know what I mean? I think, I think an entertaining pan that also is, um, you know, allows some room for the artist to be who they are as possible, and, and that kind of pan I really like reading. Right. But something, something that's more mean-spirited, I never quite connected with that, um, and... I, I feel like it was never quite my style, although I did enjoy writing about records that I didn't like, but to me, it was a little bit more of an exercise in trying to figure out why I didn't like it right. uh, than it was to kind of dismiss this band outright. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that it's just me as a writer. It was never quite my thing, um, although I was always very aware of that kind of writing place in the pitch in pitchfork's history so i don't know if that really answers that question well no i mean i mean it kind of circles back to what we were talking about before where now i feel like certainly i mean you know pitchfork doesn't do that kind of review very often anymore and 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 many places don't do that kind of review anymore unless it's like a really easy target you know Mm -hmm. if you're going to pick like a big if you're gonna like slam Ed Sheeran or something, just using him as an example, right. like it's very easy to take a shot at him. But like to write a, a you know like a really kind of mean review about, uh, you know like a, like an establishment pop star, um, I think. Do you think that's di- more difficult now? I mean, I just feel like in a way, for the same reasons we were talking about before, where if. If you know that, because because now the possibility that like because like, you know you could slam that maybe you could maybe write that review in the mid two thousands and know like this small cadre of indie rock fans are going to read it and they're going to think it's funny and and that's how who's going to see it. But now there's a possibility that like millions of people will see it and they will become extremely angry at you. Right. And there's sort of a calculus that everyone does, whether they admit it or not, where they have to figure out is it worth it to do this. Yeah. And sometimes just to make a bunch of jokes at someone's expense is not really worth it necessarily. And maybe yep. that's a good thing. I mean, I think you could, in some respects, it's good that that kind of thing doesn't happen because those reviews sometimes just aren't very thoughtful or well-written. Um, right. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's sort of a yeah. rambling question. Well, I kind of have two, two different, two, two thoughts on it. I mean, one is like, I mean, the idea of, you know, truly mean-spirited pans. Um, I kind of, I kind of separate that from, from your like, from like a thoughtful pan, right? You know? um, and the mean-spirited pans. I, I guess I feel like, especially the, for the pitchfork now, it's not, it's not exactly de- defensible. Um, although I guess it depends on where you, where you draw those lines. But um, just because I don't know. I don't know how much it adds to the conversation. Um, but, but on the other hand, like there are two things that, that I think is true with pans in general. One is I actually, I do feel like, um, I feel like it's instructive for a writer, a reader, and maybe an artist, not really sure, but I, I feel like writing about things that you don't think are good is, is actually really important. Right. Really interesting. Um, and, I, I worry about that being lost um, because you, you definitely see less of it now. Um, but I feel like it, it helps throw what's interesting and good about music into relief when, you're, when you have something to compare it to. In a way. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, I think that's how you find out how you actually, what you actually like about something when you hear something right. that's like, oh, yeah, this is what I don't like. So it kind of spotlights what I do like. And that's a really good way to do that. But there is a strong, uh, I think there's a strong sort of wave against discouraging people to write about, because there's always this thing now where, well, one, is this thing even popular enough to pan? Sometimes it's like, if it's not well known enough, it's like, well, 
who cares if you don't like it? So that's a thing that becomes difficult because uh, it's difficult enough to write about things that people don't know about that you like. So, so right. to write about it and not even endorse it can be a difficult thing. And then also, I think there's an idea now too that if you don't like it, someone else probably likes it. So maybe they should write about it. Maybe yep. this wasn't for you. And um, I mean, that's another thing that's kind of tricky now where how do you write about things in a way where you're not an expert on it and should only experts be writing about things? Is there any yeah. value sometimes in just someone listening to it as a sort of lay person and giving their, their take on it? Yeah, right. I don't know. I guess it depends on how smart the writer is or how good they are. Um, yeah. But that, that, that's another thing that, that gets difficult. Because I, I think to say like, well, if you don't know anything about something, you shouldn't write about it. That is an objective good. I don't know how you could argue against that, but that does help contribute to how maybe some homo, like how homogeneous opinions sometimes end up being. Yes. Yeah. How much? How do people take time to become an expert in things they don't like? Right. Probably not. You know. Um, and yeah, that one of the interesting things that happens with Pitchfork. I mean, Pitchfork's definitely committed to um, the idea that. I, well, every time I talk about Pitchfork, I just have to talk about it in terms of as of six days ago. <laughs> because, <laughs> right. um, I, was, I was in a conversation with someone today, and I was like, man, I, I have to get used to not saying we talk about Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah. But um, Pitchfork is definitely committed to the idea of exploring music, talking about the good and the bad, um, et cetera. But it, one of the things that's really challenging in that is trying to find writers who want to write about something they don't like. It actually happens much more at the writer level than it does um, at the editorial level. You're like, oh, here's a lot of reviews, and most of the writers seem to think they're, they're good records. Well, it's pretty hard to find freelancers these days, especially younger ones, who are want to take the time and also, I guess, endure the social media abuse of There are many good young writers, critics, who are like, yeah, I'm just not really interested in writing about things that I don't like. And that, that's something that, wasn't true, that I don't think was true 10 years ago. I mean, and I think, I think that really is a product of the social media. Right? Right. I mean, you, you, think, you think it's just because people are like, eh, if I write about this and I slam it, I'm, I'm going to get killed all day yep. long. It's not worth it. I think, that's, I think that's definitely a component of it, yes. And I don't know how you combat that <laughs> other than to say, try not to care or like just don't go on social media as much, um, which might be a difficult thing to say to someone. I don't know. But I mean, I know, yeah. I know for me, uh, I have that voice. I think, look, if you write in the modern era, if you, if you say you don't have that voice in your head, you're lying. Okay. I mean, maybe you can be like Jonathan Franzen and you're going bird watching instead of going on Twitter or whatever, like, right. which is great for him. I wish I could do that. But you know, if for the rest of us, um, you know, that voice is there. I think you have to learn to ignore it, especially when you feel like it, uh, if, if it's something that needs to be said, but you know, but, yeah, like just the calculus of saying, because I remember like, you know, like maybe 10 years ago, I'd be much more apt to just say, um, I have this crazy idea for a blog, I'm going to write it. And right. it's not super well thought out, but it's fun. I think it's kind of funny and I'm just going to throw it out there. And if people don't like it, well, it's just like one post, like who cares? It's not a big deal. Right. Um, I still do that sometimes. I actually did that recently and uh, I got murdered. I got totally mur uh, murdered for that. Although some people really liked it too. But it is. But yeah, like you have to be prepared right. to get murdered sometimes. Uh, even if, even like and in my case, I, I felt like I was writing about something that wasn't even that serious, and it, I still got totally slagged for it. But you know, that's part. Yeah, I guess that's just part of the job. Yeah. There. And there's, there's a couple other things about it too. One is. Um, you know, part part of the reason a lot of people like getting into music, and I think everyone's got this to a certain degree, is um, as a writer, you're kind of like, hey, I like I like turning people on to bands that I like that they might find interesting. 
Right. Um, that's, I feel like that's at least a little true for almost every music critic who ever existed, even if they don't necessarily think of themselves as like tastemakers or, you know, there to serve artists or whatever. There's, there's still a small part, like even Chris Gow's got wussy. And, um, though of like, hey, I get a little charge out of pointing people to this band that I think is great that maybe they haven't heard of. So I think, you know, that, that occupies a certain amount of brain space for a lot of people writing about music. I, I totally get that. So anytime you're, you're writing about something you don't think is very good, you're taking time away from doing that. And the other part of it is I feel like um, there's pop, you know, optimism in general has kind of eroded the idea of there being um, a shared uh, set of standards about good and bad. Right. So it's a little bit harder to pan records when you're not sure if your audience is on the same page about, you know, what has value. Um, and I think that once upon a time that was a little bit easier because you could make some assumptions about what your audience is understanding of you know, good music was or whatever. And now I feel like, yeah, I, I mean, as you said a few minutes ago, like I feel like there's this sense that every record has is for somebody and, um, you know, it, there's, there's going to be very very little agreement about about, about something just being ter- flat out terrible where a lot of people are going to even understand that that's the case. No. Well, I mean, it... It, again, it kind of gets back to feedback. I mean, I think the difference too is that you just hear from you can hear from every single person that's read it now, theoretically. You know, whereas now, like you used to maybe not have as good of an idea of what the response was to something, and now, you know, like if one person doesn't like it, you can hear what they think of it, and it, it may affect how you feel. Like, I mean, do you feel like that ever affected Pitchfork's direction? Like people that would complain about you not covering certain kinds of artists or bands or, you know, not doing enough of this or that? Um, I, do, I don't really think so. I think that um, it was kind of baked in to, to Pitchfork's entire concept that a lot of people were going to complain about what we were doing. <laughs> right. Um, so we were pretty used to that from the early going. Um, so I don't, I, I feel like, there, I feel like there was a certain amount of, um, immunity towards that kind of thing. Um, which is not to say that there weren't some huge errors in judgment made over the years that um, in some cases are being slowly corrected. <laughs> is there anything in particular that you're like, oh man, this this was a, an embarrassing mistake that stands well, out that thing, you'd want to talk about? One thing that comes up um, is, you know, some reviews that are still in the archives, which is, I mean, one is like that on Discovery, you know, um, and, uh, what was the deal with that? What's that? What's the deal with Daft Punk's discovery? I haven't seen that review. Um, I think it was given like, uh, you know, a six or something. And at that time, Pitchfork's center of gravity was still very much the indie rock realm. So it was very suspicious of dance music. Right. And, um, an artist like Daft Punk was not taken seriously. Um, as for what they were doing. They weren't really evaluated on their own terms. They were like, it was more like, hey, this is an indie rock. <laughs> not, <laughs> not exactly, but... So it was like, that was sort of panned, half-panned, and um, I think it's universally acknowledged as like a classic, groundbreaking, important record. Right. And even in, when Pitchfork has, uh, you, know, read, you know, done these decade lists and so on, it, it, it got a few and then some. But... Um, but at the time, yeah, it was like, it was just, it was out of step with, with what the site thought was important. And it was, you know, it was panned and like, that's obviously, it. I think it got to fix something, so maybe panned too harsh, but, but it was just not really understood for what it was. Um, and it was not really, so that's not really one I don't think anybody that much more is designed for 15 years or more. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you guys were not nice enough to Love as Hell by Ryan Adams. I'm going to throw that out there, too. So I think that got like a 3.5. So let's go in and we'll change Daft Punk and we'll change uh, Love as Hell. Like, if you, do you still have like the, 
the codes, like the passwords to get into the Pitchfork system? Like we, we could, I do not. We could just I'm go in. We could be like vigilantes, like review vigilantes and just correct scores from the past. Like, oh, like, man. Uh, <laughs> People watching too closely, we could never get away with it. <laughs> you, know, you, you were talking at the start uh, about how you felt like this was a good time for you to step away, and you mentioned how, you know, just sort of the uncertainty of the industry uh, being maybe a factor in your thinking there. Like when you look ahead, what do you feel like the future is of music criticism? Or is there a future? Like, are we on like the clock, the apocalypse clock for record reviews at this point? Yeah, good question. I think, um, I actually was just talking to someone about this, uh, the other day. Um, I think that, When I think of album reviews um, as a form and, and as a as a kind of writing that people are interested in reading, it's it's not hard for me to imagine that disappearing someday. Um, but I think I think it's going to happen maybe slower than we would have thought five or six years ago. Um, in part because a lot of artists are invested in the album form, and right. a lot of artists are. Uh, comfortable or uh, used to the idea that that, it, that it's a yardstick for artistic achievement music to make a great album. So, um, you know, I, I think as long as that's the case, writing about, you know, writing about these albums in a, in a review format where you rate them, I feel like it, it has a future um, for, for a certain period of time. Mostly, I'm just not sure if someone who's coming of age, who's you know, 15 year old years old right now, they're another 10 or 12 years they're writing about music. How are they going to frame, you know, frame their thoughts? I feel like that's that's hard to say. But um, I feel like the album review's still going to still got some legs. I think it's going to be around for for a while. Um, how about, like, how, I think how, it'll how be around like, for a while, but not forever. Like how would just like music websites in general? I mean, it feels like we're in a constant state of flux here. Like I was thinking about my own, you know, time in the business, and I've been in media for almost, well, it's like about eight, it'll be eighteen years this month, and I can't remember a time when things seemed like totally hunky dory, and like there was, you know, it seems like there's always been some form of like layoffs or hiring freezes or some weirdness going on, websites starting and closing. So that kind of gives me hope when I think of the current moment because it seems uncertain now, but maybe it's always been uncertain and things just kind of right. work themselves out. But am I being overly optimistic? Are we, because I mean, there is also this idea that, um, you know, Facebook has sort of destroyed a lot of traffic for a lot of people that it's become harder and harder to be, you know, your own sort of independent entity in the in, in the modern world it seems like content uh just like how audiences have been broken down it seems like content has been broken down so there's no distinction between say a long form story that's really well reported and like a cat gif you know and it's like whatever gets the most traffic is what wins you know right. i don't know if we're going towards that sort of you know dystopian reality uh do you have any feelings on that well I think that um, one of the things that's changing there is how much stuff happens on a mass scale and how much stuff happens because a, a certain audience wants it and whether only having a certain audience that wants it is enough to make it profitable enough to do it, you know? Um, like one of, one of the things I always thought with Pitchfork's reviews in general, thinking about what, what Pitchfork does with reviews and how they work um, is that they're... I, I always said that the audience for music reviews is is not the, gen, the general music fan, but it's people that like reading reviews. Right. Which is a subset of, of music fans, um, and even a subset of people who like reading about music. So um, I feel like... I feel like that audience there will always be a version of that audience there. I don't know how large it'll be, but the question is whether the infrastructure is enough to sustain people doing that professionally um, forever. And that I'm not really sure about. Um, 
and you know, and obviously the, the other part of it too is that we're writers doing with the written word. Well, right now we're talking on a podcast. And <laughs> podcast presumably something is still growing, as are people talking about records by, on video. You right. know, um, as, as people become used to these kinds of other mediums for delivering opinions, uh, it seems possible that that will supplant uh, written word to a degree. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean. It is tumultuous. It has been for a while. Um, it seems more dramatic now. The thing that people always talk about when they talk about the history of music writing is that 25 years ago, every town had a local paper, and every local paper had a local music critic, and they were writing about music. And, you know, so presumably there were, you know, many hundreds or maybe low thousands of people the United States were employed to something like that. And that that's a loss that's definitely felt. Um, and but but it's but it's hard to say because there are also more people writing now for an audience for a national audience, probably for less money. I don't know. It's like one of the tricky things about talking about the future of, of something like uh, of music writing online is that it's so hard to find proper points Right. Right. Like, I mean, it's one of the interesting things with people talking about Spotify and, and, you know, what they pay artists. And, um, like, we're in this, we're in a moment right now where we're absolutely saturated with data and we can pull up in in an instant, okay, this got 500,000 plays and we know that that pays 0.02 cents per play. So they got a check last month for this amount of dollars. And you can actually make those calculations. Well, if you go back to, uh, 1996, you know, like, what did pavement make that year? You know, I mean, it's like, who knows? You know what I mean? You can ask guys in the band or you can look at their tax returns. I mean, maybe they didn't file taxes. They probably got cash on the road. Who knows? But it's like having these specific points of comparison between then and now is not really easy because there's there's not really a lot of data from the past to know exactly what we're making and how it works. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. And, you know, and there's so... And you never know where the audience is going to go. You know that that's another thing. Or like if the people that have money actually feel like it has any value. You know, I feel like you know maybe that's the most important thing is you know we have to find billionaires that like loved reading Pitchfork reviews in in the two thousands and two thousand tens and like want to keep paying for it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's the thing. So do you know what you're going to do next? I do. So um, I can tell you with a certain amount of specificity, but only but so much. Uh, so I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach this fall. I'm um, I'm teaching a course in arts criticism at the University of New York oh, nice. uh, Graduate School of Journalism, which I'm very excited about. That starts at the end of this month. Um, I have taught college once before, and I'm really excited to get back to teaching try it again it's incredibly challenging um has a real has a certain connection to what i've done for the last 11 years as an editor yeah help young writers you know write write about music better um and that sounds like i think you would be great at that it sounds like that's a perfect fit i hope so we'll see um and then the other thing is is i'm going to take a little bit of time now and um i'm putting together an idea for a book. Um, and I know you've written a couple books that have done very well, so um, you know where I'm coming from with that. But it's, it's like a little bit early for me at this moment to talk about what it is because I'm still, still kind of formulating it. It's about a child magician who is named Harry, and <laughs> he goes to a school. I'm just kidding. I mean, that would be a good idea, though, because that's a very profitable idea. Or yeah, write it once. Or write a book about sexy vampires. I'm trying to think of a good sexy vampires idea because I feel like I love writing about music, but I feel like uh, the money is in books about sexy vampires and and, and stuff like that. True. <laughs> well, Mark, good luck with everything. Thank you for giving me your time, and uh, it's it was a pleasure talking with you. I hope to have you on again sometime. Yes, I, absolutely. Right subject comes along, definitely let me know. I'd be happy to talk about something more specific. All right, man. Well, hey, take care. Uh, we'll, uh, We'll talk to you again soon. All right, take care. 
All right, that was me and Mark talking about music writing, talking about Pitchfork, sounding a little bit wistful, <laughs> maybe in there. I don't know. It's interesting to kind of reflect on how things have changed. You, you think about like 2006, and that doesn't seem that long ago, and yet in internet years, it feels like it's like 50 years ago. You know, there's so many different things that have happened since then. It's just amazing to reflect on. So best of luck to Mark as he moves on with his future endeavors. He's a really great writer. I'm sure whatever he does next is going to be great. Um, guys, thanks again for listening to this week's episode. Uh, Got to give a shout out to the man who makes it happen, Derek Madden. Thank you, Derek. Got to give a shout out to the guy who wrote our theme song, Josh Copperman. Thank you, Josh. And of course, thank you to all of our Celebration Rock listeners. We are going to be back next week, as we always are, with more Celebration Rock. Take care. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. How wrestling really works and how you get the ratings. Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson explain on 83 Weeks. This is indeed the first WrestleMania without Vince McMahon. It is about as horrible as it can get, but does erasing that history make it any better? Everybody's being careful not to celebrate Vince McMahon. I think you can acknowledge him without celebrating him. I think that's the double-edged sword that everybody's sort of carrying for now. 83 Weeks on YouTube or wherever you listen.